Hey guys, welcome back. Just a reminder, tickets are on sale for our conference next May 22nd through the 25th in Grafton, Illinois. Once again, we're really excited about that. If you want to join us, go to the link below, journeytotruthcon.com, and all the information is there. There's live stream tickets available as well for $99. Uh, come hang out with us. We're really looking forward to it. Just a reminder, guys, we have a new Hopewell Farm CBD promo code, JTT New, gets you 20% off through the end of the year, all their products. That link is below as well. And as always, we have the Omnia Radiation Balancer, a patch you put on any radiating device, harmonizes the frequency, the harmful EMF coming in, and actually balances your energy field and turns that frequency into something beneficial for you instead of harmful. It's a really great technology. You get 10% off all their products with promo code TRUTH, all caps. So today we are going to talk about giants. We have Floyd Willis here with us who wrote an incredible book and Aaron and him actually met, have a, have a really weird story how they met. Uh, the, what's, the book's called uh, The Red-Haired Giants of Lovelock Cave and Other Ancient Mysteries. Yeah. I mean, it covers not just giants, but dwarves, uh, ETs. Yeah, cover a lot more e than giants. ETs, right. Paul Whites, uh, reptilians. We, you know, you get into everything. But why don't you go ahead and tell the story how you guys met and how we're even here today? Right. So, so uh, as many of you know, I was living in Portland, Oregon for about a year. Um, and I was eating at a Indian buffet called Namaste with my roommate. And uh, we were just talking about stuff. And uh, Floyd overheard us talking and came up and <laughs> was just like, hey, I just want to say, uh I, I don't remember what you said exactly but um oh yeah you guys totally caught my attention you know you were talking about the whole pandemic and everything what was going on and uh i was there with my sons and i just overheard you guys and i was like oh my gosh these these people are awake it it reminded me of the uh the movie they live and when they would wear the sunglasses <laughs> right i'm like movie. these yeah these people have their sunglasses on my goodness so i'm like yeah. i've got to i was a little nervous at first but i was like you know what i'm just going to go over there introduce myself and just say hello and and Thank it led it led to this yeah, yeah. thanks for exactly. having me on and you didn't even know I had a podcast. No, I didn't. Time. No, I, right. you had your shirt on. I was wearing a shirt. Yeah, I was wearing a shirt, but I didn't notice it. And then you were like, uh, in the conversation, like, oh, yeah, I've got a podcast journey to truth. And I'm like, well, well how could I find it? And you like get up and you turn around and you show me the back of your shirt. You know, <laughs> right. I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. The, you um, know, and I didn't and I didn't know you wrote a book or that you were. A yeah. So that was I was right in the process of uh, of doing the formatting on it. Uh, I had already written the book, but Nice. Yeah, I was going through that process. And yeah, it's amazing how when you just connect with people, you know, mm -hmm. have a conversation, you know, reach out um, what it could lead to. This is incredible. Here I am on your guys show. I mean, this right. is and that's, and that's why I wanted to right. tell that story. The importance of just being vocal, opening mm -hmm. your mouth, talking about this stuff, speaking your truth, and you yes. literally attract the things in your life that, you know, you're right. supposed to come across. Especially in Portland, because there's always in the back of my mind like what if somebody gets mad hearing what we're talking about and like tries to fight me in the parking lot or so or you know who knows absolutely but the absolutely. opposite happened with the opposite you, so. happened it's, it's incredible just the um i don't know if you want to call it synchronicity um uh, attraction um you know whatever you know um it's just incredible like how a conversation could end up and here right. we are and yeah, I, right. I thank you guys for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here. And I want to thank your audience as well. So, 
Yeah, we're looking yeah. forward to this. Yeah, thank you, man. Uh, like I like I said earlier, your book covers so much about giants and everything. I mean, you've done some extensive research into this topic, and I want to start with the main topic of the book, the red-haired giants of Lovelock Cave. For our audience who doesn't know that story, would you mind kind of giving us a background of the story and the history of that? Yeah, absolutely. That that story comes from the northern Paiute. And in their oral tradition, they speak of a tribe of red-haired giants. And they have various names of these giants. One of them was Satika, which means Thule eater. Thule is like a water plant. And the area where these giants lived, uh, there was a giant lake. And it was very marshy at that particular time in history. And they would, you know, they would uh, fish and they would use these Thule plants and they would uh, weave basketry and make boats and things like that. Um, so they've been in the Paiute history for a long time. Um, they were cannibalistic giants. They weren't a nice tribe. They would actually attack the other surrounding tribes and they would they would eat the other tribal members. Finally, the Paiute got tired. They had waged war on these giants for a number of years and they banded together and they cornered the last of the giants at Lovelock Cave and they threw brush in front of the cave and they shot flaming arrows and, and burned the giants to death. Now, some of the Paiutes believe not all of them were killed. Some of them escaped. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I read that part. Mm -hmm. They said, you know, some secret escape. or Some secret, know, secret escape. Yes. And so this was, this isn't just some tale. They've actually discovered the bones, discovered the artifacts, and uncovered them. They were buried in like in five to six feet of guano, back guano. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll get a little bit into the back backstory of that. But that's why this particular story intrigued me so, so much was because there was a lot of evidence, there's actual artifacts that came out of the cave, and skeletal remains, most of which disappeared. However, some of the skulls did end up in a small museum, a Humboldt museum in Winnemucca. And that museum had them for decades, but they kept them in cupboards in the basement. They never put them on public display. And if you wanted to actually view these skulls, you had to ask to, to view them. They're no longer there. But the whole backstory of this, uh, originally the cave was, the artifacts and the giants were discovered in 1911 by two guano miners. Guano was basically bat poop and it was used as fertilizer. And so these two miners, uh, went into Lovelock Cave and discovered artifacts and giant mummies. That was in 1911. One of those uh, who made the discovery, his name was John Reed. And he actually knew about the legend of the red-haired giants from when he was a teenager. He was friends with um, a Native American who was a son of Chief Winnemucca. His name was Natchez. And one time, uh, at John's uh, family farm, the horses got out and they went to retrieve the horses. And this went on for days and days trying to track down these horses. They ended up camping outside of Lovelock Cave and it was raining out. And uh, John was like, well, why don't we just go in that cave and take shelter? And Natchez says, no, we're not going in there because the, the spirits of the red haired giants haunt that cave. And then he relayed uh, to John the story of the red haired giants and how they were cannibalistic, they were evil and how his um, ancestors had killed him off. And basically their spirits haunted that, that cave. So he, uh, John had an interest in archeology span from when he was very young and he knew about the red haired giants. So it was kind of ironic that he heard the story of the giants and actually went in the cave to try to explore it when he was a teenager and just found 
piles of bat poop and you know nothing else and left but then later as an adult he would go back into that cave and they would make that discovery of these tall red-haired mummies and artifacts so it was a real interesting story how it went full circle so he knew about the legend and he actually was an amateur archaeologist himself and had a lot of curiosity about the giants and the most curious thing to me is that the old newspaper articles that covered all this stuff I just saw on a little mini documentary I was watching that there have been up to 1,500 newspaper articles written about the discovery of giant skeletons dating all the way back to the 1800s. What happened to 50? I've read some of these articles myself. Mm-hmm. And then uh, now there's just no record of them, not even in the Smithsonian, which in the book you refer to the Smithsonian Gate. And I would like you to explain what that is for our audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Smithsonian Gate is just the whole concept of what I call knowledge filtration. And it's Mm -hmm. basically if something doesn't fit in what you've been taught or what your ideology you're teaching, it's just simply filtered out. You don't even acknowledge it. And so there's, you know, there's a question that many researchers have. Well, is there like a big conspiracy by the Smithsonian to like hide the stuff? Or is it more like they just have this knowledge filtration, like it doesn't fit into our paradigm. So if we come across a giant skeleton, you know, we'll just write it off and just, you know, stick it in a box somewhere in a in a warehouse, you know. Um, So that's open to debate. Is there some big conspiracy or is it knowledge filtration? And, you know, many I think there's many individuals that have made discoveries like this, archaeologists, paleontologists, but they they feared about their career. Like if they really came forward, brought this to the public, you know, what would happen to them? What would happen to their career? And I actually give a specific example of that in the book of a of a lady, uh, Virginia Steen McIntyre, um, who was doing some uh, uh, dating on an archaeological site in Mexico. And she uh, reported what she honestly found and said, this site shows human habitation going back you know, 200, possibly 200,000 years. Right. And that would totally rewrite North American history. And she uh, was brave enough to come forward. Well, she was ostracized. She lost her career and she's never been involved in, in paleontology, archaeology since that point. Right. And so, so it's a religion basically too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it is. Against and, the religion you're ostracized. Yes, you're ostracized. And there was a thing called the Powell Doctrine when um, the Smithsonian was first founded. And basically, uh, John Wesley Powell, he was a really influential man in the field of archaeology. And he basically said, came forward and said, oh, if there's any a discovery of pre-Columbian artifacts in America, it just can't be. And it's, you know, it's either they have been planted uh, or misidentified. Fake. It must be fake. Must be. And so it must be fake. So from a very early point in our history here in America, it's been taught in the universities that if there's any kind of pre-Columbian discoveries here in America, it doesn't matter how much evidence that you have, it doesn't fit with with our paradigm. So it just simply, it's not true. Yeah. I mean, and but you're talking 200,000 years old. Uh, you know, that's one account. I've read the, some other articles that talked about skeletons in New Mexico dating 25,000 to 50,000 years ago. Now, I want to put this into perspective. Graham Hancock's new show, Ancient Apocalypse, he's mm-hmm. trying to argue that these sites are even 10 to 12,000 years old. Like, And that, people came and wrapped their head around that. But we have evidence going, but dating back possibly as far as 200,000 years Way ago. older than that. Way, way older. Way, way older. older. 
Yeah. Yes. And that's an interesting point you bring up. I love Graham Hancock. I, he's one of my one of my heroes. Fingerprints of the Gods was one of his first books I read. But in, in my book, I actually cite uh, an archaeological discovery in San Diego that happened in the 90s. There was some road construction work going on and they found the uncovered the bones of a mastodon. And so they they called in their archaeologists, paleontologists. They're, they're looking at this thing and, and the mammoth had been the bones had been broken up. And the morrow, it looks like the morrow was gone from the bones. So, so some, some intelligent being sucked the morrow out of the bones. And there were stone cobbles next to the bones that were, that were made. They were made by an intelligent being to break the bones to suck the morrow out. Well, here's the kicker. They dated the mastodon bones to be at probably 120,000 years old, right? right. Give or take 10,000 years. And, and the discover the researchers on the sites basically saying, hey, we have solid evidence that there were hominids in North America over 100,000 years ago. And they could have been Neanderthals. They could have been Denisovans. They, who knows what they could have been? They were intelligent um, hominid species that were smart enough to make tools. Right. Exactly. And, exactly. and that goes back to the cover-up because the yeah. evidence is concrete in some cases. And I've heard a whistleblower, and I'm sorry, guys, I don't remember his name. It was an old interview I watched. Apparently, he worked for the Smithsonian, and he said, in some cases, they wouldn't, they would actually destroy the evidence. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard of cases uh, like that as well. And I recently uh, got in contact with a researcher that knew the old curator at the Humboldt Museum where those skulls were originally that came out of Lovelock Cave, and she claims that, that the old curator had revealed to her that the Smithsonian came in and they took everything out of there. They took them all out. Yeah. Now, when the museum to uh, look at the skulls to go view them, um, they told me, oh, those were repatriated back to the Native Americans. OK, which I thought was weird because NAGPRA was enacted in the 1990s. Right. And these skulls had been there for at least 50 years. So this was long before all the political stuff and they were kept in the basement and you couldn't even see them. So if this had to do with NAGPRA, well, NAGPRA was enacted in the 90s, but they've been there for 50 years. Right. And so something's not adding up. It's not making sense to me. Well, yeah, and then you have Abraham Lincoln claiming to see, you know, he saw giants. It's even at Niagara, right? He mentioned yeah. something about the eyes of those extinct giants. Yeah, and then yeah. Uh, there's right. there's apparently information out there that he was brought to under one of these mounds in North America and shown some giant skeletons in Ohio. I think I Ohio. Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Ohio. And A lot of those skeletons. Apparently, his name's even like autographed. In so there's like an entrance to, that goes into underneath one of these mounds, mm -hmm. and apparently his name is like carved in the stone, like as it used to be almost like a tourist site. Not just him, yeah. but a bunch, a bunch of, of a bunch of other people. Mm -hmm. It's it's hilarious to me that we have to even fight for this truth to get, to get out yes. there. Well, absolutely. But if you see what's going on now in our society with all the, the like the matrix we live in, with a cover up with just the current things going on. It's just they've been doing that with our ancient history. Yeah. They've been co covering things up. You know, if you control the past, you know, you can you can control the present. Exactly. Exactly. Control the future. Right. And, exactly. And I don't know how accurate this number is. So uh, there's a documentary about giants on Gaia TV. 
Mm-hmm. And I forgot what it's actually called, but it's, it's about ancient giants. And they said by 1920, somewhere it's documented that in North America, they found over 3,000, I think like 3,781 giant skeletons by 1920. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, an, that's a massive number to just erase. Right. It, exactly. Yeah. It, it would not surprise me. I mean, I just started compiling a giant file like looking up these old newspaper articles and i'm like this is crazy like reading some of these articles and and sure maybe maybe there were some misidentified misidentified bones sure maybe there were a couple of hoaxes but the more and more articles i found i found these really strange consistencies like massive jaw bones in some case double rows of teeth Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just these little subtleties that were connecting. I'm like, oh, that other article mentioned this weird anomaly. And here, this other discovery is is making a similar statement. Right, right. And this was obviously long before internet or anything where a hoax could just, you know, go worldwide and a click of a mouse. This was before all that. And that's uh, the Cahokia Mound site is only 25 minutes from us. And they've, Mm -hmm. there's an old newspaper article where they found two skeletons with double rows of teeth. Yeah, that's interesting. I just was out to Cahokia probably uh, a couple years ago. It was absolutely amazing. Nice. But yeah, in my book too, I also get into uh, the the nominee, anomalies like the double rows of teeth. And in fact, uh, it's mentioned in the Bible. There is a giant in the Bible who is uh, one of the uh, uh, um, brothers of Goliath who had a double row of teeth and six digits on each hand and on each foot. And right. David and his warriors, they they killed they killed him off. But it makes specific reference to a giant with, with those anomalies. And in right. Chaco Canyon, there are depictions of six-toed footprints and handprints carved in the walls in some of the but and that part's closed off to the public. And that part's closed off. And I actually uh in, in my book I referenced uh that talking about the Anasazi and some of their oral history of the giants and they and they just like what you had referenced Tyler with the handprints uh the six digits and I, I think I've seen some too like in Utah that if you notice the big hands that have the the six digits they are much bigger or the feet that have six digits they're much bigger than the ones that have five they have like a little hand with with five digits and they have this giant hand with six digits yeah like like what are what are the odds of that also in lovelock cave there are some researchers mk davis and don monroe they discovered a, a huge handprint in Lovelock Cave. It was immense. And in fact, I have a photograph of it in my book where Don's got like some big, um, like a buoy knife and he's holding it up to the handprint. And it's massive. It's probably 10 times the size of a normal hand. And then they came back, I don't know how many months later, and, and that handprint was completely gone. It was like it was gone. It was erased. It was erased. What? do you think or do you know what the tallest documented skeleton ever found was that that we could say is pretty solid um most of the ones that that i came across in my articles were you know eight with a big tall the tall tall ones maybe eight to nine feet there was a reference and this is crazy um this was in pennsylvania of a 16 foot alleged 16 foot tall giant uh, found underneath a burial mound, and it had the armor. It said in the article, it had a giant helmet and armor like those found in the ancient city of Nineveh. And it had a sword supposedly nine feet in length. 
Yeah, I, I, I could. Wow. Yeah, I couldn't find any more information on that. Um, it could have been a hoax, but you know what? With you know, with the Smithsonian coming in and confiscating everything, if something like that was found, I mean, certainly they're not going to go stick it in a local museum. They're right. gonna they're gonna haul it out, just like an Indiana Jones. You know, right. oh, what happened to the Ark? Oh, we got our top men working on it, and it's all crated up along with all the other. Mm-hmm. Great. And, well, in the book you mentioned, Never be seen again. And mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but I thought in the book you mentioned a, something about a twenty-five foot tall skeleton in Peru, maybe. Or um, actually, I think there was a huge one, like over twenty feet, and I think that was here in North America in right. in the desert. And I think it wasn't. A, a, I don't remember if it was a full skeleton, but it was like a leg bone. And this was in the eighteen hundreds. And some local physicians looked at it and they said. This is the longest leg femur bone we've ever, we've ever found. Right. So, and then that, that would match up with some of these footprints, like the footprint that Michael Tillinger is standing next to that's like on the wall. I mean, that's ancient. Is that in South Africa? Yeah, in yeah. Africa. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. And speaking of footprint, um, a couple references in my book, one sandal, a Thule sandal that came out of Lovelock Cave allegedly worn by a red-haired giant was 17 inches long. So if you have a 17-inch long sandal, and actually that information was sent to me by an anthropologist. I was actually in communication with an anthropologist at the Nevada State Museum, and he was providing me some interesting information on the red-haired giants, but I started asking too many questions, and the communication just stopped. But I did include some of our dialogue. It was very interesting. But it was a 17-inch sandal that came out of the cave. That translates into about a shoe size of 20, 29. <laughs> That's a big foot. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. L- let's take this back even further. To yeah. In the book, you mentioned dinosaurs and possible reptilian hominids, humanoids. Yeah. And there's depictions of these even in old books with dinosaurs, right? Yeah. And right. Well, go ahead. Explain oh, no. what you found uh, there. Yeah. Yeah. It was so interesting um, because I remember as a kid, it, it was I was doing my research into this. Um, I, I actually traveled to Mexico. Uh, I met a gentleman over there, and he was actually a big inspiration uh, for me writing the book. His name was Dr. Charles Spurgeon. Um, he passed away uh, probably five years ago, but he had sent me some writings on the Nephilim. He was a theologian. He was a, a ufologist, just a really interesting guy. I just loved how open-minded he was. And he lived. In, he was living in Mexico at the time, but he had he had lived in other parts. Uh, he, he lived in Honduras and, and did a lot of um, research into the uh, into the Mayans. But at any rate, so I met up with him. He took me to some archaeological sites in Mexico. And one place he took me to was a, a museum. It was, it was in a town called Acambaro. And they have all these figurines of dinosaurs and like look like uh, some of them look like ancient Egyptian um, sarcophaguses. Um, ancient Sumerians, like just this weird collection of these ceramic figures that were discovered in the 1940s by a gentleman named uh, Waldemar Jules Rudd. He was a, a local businessman in, in that area of Mexico, and um, he was an amateur archaeologist, so he loved that kind of stuff. He was out horseback riding one day. He looked down at the ground, and he saw something protruding out of the out of the ground and got off his horse, picked it up, and he started finding these little strange figurines. 
And so he hired um, some of the locals to go dig these things up. And they were bringing him thousands of these dinosaurs, dinosaur looking things, um, humanoid looking things, reptilian looking things. He became obsessed with them and his house literally got filled up with these, these figurines. And so at any rate, Charles took me to this museum to look at some of these uh, these ancient figurines. And I'm sure you guys have heard of Charles Hapgood. I've heard have of him. Have you heard of him? Yeah, yeah, he actually did some research. On, he went to Mexico and wanted to see if these were real. These figurines were, they did, if they came from an ancient culture, an, an unrecognized culture. And, he, and his research into that, he determined that they were legit, that these were ancient figurines. And so the question is, how did these ancient peoples know what dinosaurs look like and were able to make these figurines and depict them? It yeah. was a huge question. So it got me thinking like, wow, this is really, really strange. And I don't know if you've heard of the Ica stones of Peru. Uh, possibly. I'm sure I have. I'm... I want to say I have. Okay. And so those are in the book too. Those are stones that have depictions of dinosaurs with those... human interaction and all kinds of weird things. They have a stone that shows like the, these ancient peoples doing like open heart surgery. One of them that has like with a telescope. So just things on these ancient stones that shouldn't be there. These depictions, according to our history, they shouldn't be there. The yeah, dinosaurs right. died out 65 million years ago, right? So how how could our ancestors, you know, have interacted, let alone recorded this? So I, I just started bringing this together and going, this is strange. There's a lot of weird things happening in this particular area of Peru. And then I went to this museum and saw all these strange depictions of dinosaurs. And then I saw that the, I came across the Nazca mummies. And some of those mummies are from Peru and they look reptilian. Uh, and, and it triggered a memory when I was a kid, I had a book on dinosaurs and I remember there was a depiction, uh, of, they called it a dinosaurid. And it was, uh, uh, this, uh, scientist in Canada, he speculated, like, he's like, oh, if the dinosaurs didn't all die off 65 million years ago, some of them would have evolved into almost like a humanoid being. And he, and, and so he had a statue made and had elongated head big eyes it had three fingers on its hands and it and it happens to look just like one of the nazca mummies that was found in in like 2010 or or 2017 excuse me right and he yeah. got ridiculed for that speculation he got yeah. ridiculed for that but i have a picture of that depiction of the dinosaur and you can look at it and i have some photos that i got permission from the inakari institute in peru that actually has those mummies they said i can put it in my book and you could look at i think it's one of the mummies i think it was maria is what they call her and you can look at look at that picture and and look at the dinosaur picture and look at just how similar they are right and obviously we hear the tales of reptilians you know right oh, yes. in the world and all that stuff yeah um uh, which I, I there's definitely something to that uh but it there's even i think you can even google an image of a dinosaur footprint next to a human footprint fossilized like there I was think, one of those found in texas yes yeah one I of those found in texas even on google you know i mm -hmm. don't know what their mainstream explanation is for that but yeah, I think it's Paloxy, Paloxy, Texas. And in fact, my late friend, Dr. Charles Spurgeon, I, I think he had sent me a picture one time where he was he was looking at that. He was studying that. Um, but yeah, how do you explain it? I mean, you have, here you have an anatomically correct human footprint next to a dinosaur track. I mean, I don't know. Yeah.
I don't know how to explain. They lived that. at the same time. That's how you. <laughs> right. And right. Yeah. It's pretty obvious to me. Occ right? Occam's razor on that one, right? I mean, right. it's pretty, pretty apparent. Our history is not what we've been told. It's we not at all. That's why we're rewriting it right now today. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, where do the elongated skulls fit into this picture? Well, um, I that's something that I was just very fascinated with. And when I started getting into the section on um, the ET races and start talking about the grays and, you know, the tall whites and the reptilians um, on the section on the grays, a lot of them has have been described as having more of an elongated head and the, you know, big eyes, skinny little bodies and whatnot. And I'd always been intrigued with cranial deformation because that's been practiced since ancient times throughout a variety of different cultures. And I thought to my, well, that is so weird. Like what would make someone say, you know, to their, to their wife, like, Hey, let's just elongate junior's head, you know, right. just to like, okay, let's give them this weird look, right? So could it be that, or could it be like these ancient peoples had some interaction with beings that had elongated heads that had some, you know, they were either advanced technologically, um, they, they had a much higher uh, civilization and they looked at them as being like gods. And so what is the best form of flattery exactly. is imitation. Yeah. is imitation they're like wow we want to be like these things so we want to look like these things yeah. and so you you get into the concept of the cradle boarding where they would strap the board to the head and um or they would take a cloth and they would bind the head but there are some of these skulls in peru they've analyzed them they haven't been artificially elongated they were that way naturally they were that way naturally and while we're on the subject i have this is part of my my personal collection this is from um this is from peru this is not a real uh, authentic skull but this is a casting of one of the the, the peruvian skulls and wow. you can see just how elongated the the skull is turn it from sideways and right. on the back on the back of the skull it's different from a homo sapien there's what's in a in in, in our skulls there's what's called a sagittal suture which they they said looks like a bow and arrow so this curvature here is like the bow and there should be a suture going up this way to symbolize the arrow but if you look on this skull you don't you just see the bow you don't see the other the other no suture here. there's no middle suture right? there's no middle suture so it's different in fact some of the ancient skulls at, over there particularly in the ica uh, region uh, of Peru, they actually have, some of them have two holes in the back of their skull. And experts have looked at this and, 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 and said, wow, that's like a natural thing. That's like an evolutionary process to have these hole, these holes. So the, their heads were so big. So the blood flow could circulate in such big heads. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And this is not just Peru. This was global in my opinion. It's global. It's absolutely global. All of our Native Americans did it. The yeah. ancient Sumerians did it. I mean, it was practiced on uh, Europeans did it. Um, so yeah, it, it, that really intrigued me. And when I started looking at the Nazca mummies and seeing some of the elongated skulls, I'm looking at these things and they're claiming like, these are natural. These aren't artificially elongated. So I'm thinking, wow, if these are real, then this would make sense that they, these these peoples had interactions with other cultures, other civilizations, and they wanted to be like these people. So they wanted to make their heads like that. Right. And, and the good thing, going back to Graham Hancock's show, Ancient Apocalypse, the good thing about that is, for one, it's, you know, forcing people to think outside of the box. 
too, there isn't one episode where he doesn't mention giants. Although he refers to everything as folklore, myth, and legend, yes. not really. He hasn't connected those dots yet. Regardless, it's planting the seed of giants, and this this tells us that worldwide, all of these cultures were talking about yes. living among the giants. Absolutely, absolutely. And if think about it, like you know, um, dinosaurs were once roaming this planet. I mean, giant lizards, you know, right. were roaming this planet. I here's another thing from my collection. This is a a, a recreation of a jawbone of a gigantopithecus, of a giant ape that goes back 2 million years to probably 350,000 years ago. This thing was running around. Some of our ancient ancestors had uh, interactions with it, probably the Denisovans, certainly Homo heidelbergensis did. Um, these things were almost 10 feet tall. To give you some perspective, I don't know if you can see it, this is my mouthpiece I use when I practice martial arts. And this is the jawbone of one of these things to give you the perspective of how, how big these things massive, are. Massive. massive. And, and we're not even getting into the whole concept of Sasquatch and things like that. I mean, there's, I mean, it's, there's so much stuff that we just have not been told and that we really don't have answers for, but it, it certainly pokes a lot of holes in the, um, in the dam of knowledge suppression that, that uh, academics have put before us. Right. And right. I would argue in, argue that and say that we do have answers for a lot of it actually we do like, yes we like we do not like right yeah not gonna... you're not going to get it from the matrix system <laughs> yeah that's no. controlled and manipulated and there's, there's an agenda there not and the agenda is not to inform you of the truth i'm sorry it's just not it's, it's right. not not at it's all not. It's, yeah, it's how do you control people? You control right. people with fear and you control them, keep them ignorant. You keep them dumbed down and you keep them afraid. And those are very good tools for manipulation. Exactly. And my favorite part about doing research on these types of subjects is that, you know, I firmly believe that once we start, we become guided. We're guided to the next the next piece of information that we need because there's this literature is out there. These photographs, this evidence is everywhere. And once you go down that rabbit hole, once you start digging, you're led to the next piece. And you find things that if you went back two years later to try and find again, you have no idea how you got to that piece of information. So it's really curious how I feel like, you know, we're being helped. We're, we're being guided to help uncover this truth. A hundred percent. And ha this conversation right now is proof of that. Right. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Mm -hmm. Um, I had, uh, I have a, a gentleman at my church. He's a scientist. And what I lent my book to a, a buddy at my church. And I was a little nervous, like what he would think about it. And he's like, I love this Floyd. And he's starting to lend it out. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's like trying to promote me. And he gives it to this guy at my church. Who's a scientist. Yeah. And I just get a text from him. He goes, Floyd, I'm really interested in your book. I read your book. I want to meet for coffee to talk. Great. Right? So who knows what kind of conversation is he going to say? Maybe I need to be in a padded room. Hey, maybe <laughs> and I'm okay. I'm a big boy. You know, I'm like, Hey, everyone's got their opinions. Or is he going to find some things in there that really intrigued him? Um, right. Really intrigued him. And we might have some very good conversation. That's what's so important about your book and the work that you're doing, because, you know, on this show, we just jump straight in the deep end most of the time yeah we've already accepted a lot of this stuff as truth mm -hmm. and we we skip the beginner level stuff we get yep. you know but your book bridges that gap 
mm-hmm. and the it it pre- presents it in a way to where a scientist or anyone can pick it up and digest it and be like wow okay there's actually something to this and that's that's extremely crucial right now because we're not just going to get there when people want to see how you got to your conclusions yes absolutely and and that's why it was really important to me i wanted to write the book um in a way that was entertaining for people especially people that weren't familiar with with these types of subjects where uh they would be able to kind of follow along and i wouldn't lose them but on the other end too i wanted to write it in an academic form as if i was writing a college paper so i wanted to cite all my sources i wanted to leave breadcrumbs for people that are really interested to pick up on what i've done and to look and you you might you might find things that i missed you might go down a rabbit hole and, and come up with things that i didn't even look at so I wanted to leave a breadcrumb. And your table of contents is incredible. I mean, it's all like you have sub chapters within the chapters. It's all broken down. So it's a great reference guide to, I mean, you don't have to, you, it's very easily to pick that book up and find what you're looking for. Good. I'm glad to hear that. That's kind of of what I was hoping. And it actually led me down a rabbit hole, which we'll get into in a little bit, but I want to talk about something you mentioned in the book and that's ancient Mm -hmm. genetic engineering. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's that's how we're here, in my opinion, how we're here. Yeah, it's very interesting. And when I was first exposed to that, um, actually, back when I was in high school, a buddy gave me a copy of Von Donnekin's book, Chariots of the Gods. I have that book. uh, yeah. And I yeah. love how he wrote that book because he raises a lot of questions. He's not like saying, okay, this is how it is. He's just bringing all this stuff up and asking some really great questions. And so I kind of wanted to use that format when I wrote my book. And and then years and years later, I, I was led to uh, the works of Zachariah Sitchin, whom I, who I found very fascinating on his work on the ancient Sumerian culture. And, um, and of course, he talks about the Anunnaki and how the Sumerians believe the Anunnaki, you know, they, they came to the earth, they were here to mine gold, and um, they, they mixed their DNA with the primitive hominids on this planet, and they genetically engineered us. That's what the Sumerians believed. So that was my first exposure to the genetic engineering piece, but also, too, when I started looking at the Book of Enoch, um, there was mentioned uh, referencing in there and it, how it talks about the the uh, watchers who were basically the angels that were supposed to watch over us and protect us. A group of 200 of them made a pact together to basically say, hey, these women are really good looking. Let's go have a good time. We'll, we'll ha- you know, uh, have sex with these women and bear kids and whatever the consequences we will bear them. And so allegedly this group of angels uh, had sexual unions with the human women and um, they bore giants, the Nephilim. The Nephilim is a proto-Hebrew word meaning fallen ones. Right. And then also they taught humankind um, the arts of war, uh, astrology, astronomy, uh, herbalism, all these different arts. Right. That that just maybe and I raise the question, well, maybe maybe humankind wasn't quite ready for all that. And and maybe they kind of jumped the gun and it's like given a, you know, a 10 year old car keys, credit cards, um, you know, a bottle of whiskey and a gun. Right. It's going to lead to no good. And so in the book of Enoch, it talks about the the giants were just ravaging the land. They were destroying everything. They were uh, killing humans, um, drinking blood, uh, destroying the earth, and they were corrupting the plants and animals. And that's what I was thinking, like, that's weird. So not only were they killing all the humans off, fighting amongst each other, but they were corrupting 
plants and animals. And then I started thinking that sounds almost like kind of genetic engineering type of stuff to me. I don't know. What do you guys think? I just got chills Absolutely. when you said that. So I feel I feel like there's something to it. How else there's do you some, corrupt plants and animals? How else that? do you corrupt? Exactly. Right. So right. so it and it it's referencing referencing that in the book of Enoch and um and then there was a study that came out, I don't know, probably five or six years ago. Fleischmann, I think, was his name. I think he was a, a German scientist. But he took, uh, I think there was 10, 10 uh, Egyptian mummies, and they wanted to do DNA testing on all these, all these mummies. And all of them, all, nine of them came out normal, but there was one of them that supposedly the, the, the remains of Akhenaten, that his DNA out of, out of all those mummies was different. It was different. And um, and so uh, Fleischman looked at that and said, wow, this is weird. Uh, this looks like his DNA could have been manipulated by some advanced civilization. And he raised that possibility. And I thought that was kind of mind blowing, because if you look at depictions of Akhenaten, what does he look like? He's yeah. got this huge elongated head. He's got this elongated head and he's got this skinny little you know, little body, almost like a gray kind of. Right. Right. And right. I, I definitely believe a lot of the Egyptians and uh, any, any of these people in ancient cultures or what, what some would even call the demigods. I think they were ETs. Yeah. And if you look at it, even for, even if you look at it from a biblical perspective, if you say, okay, fallen angels came to the earth, they, they interbred with human beings and produced a hybrid offspring. Well, angels aren't from the earth, right? So technically, right. wouldn't you call them extraterrestrials? If they're not from the earth, they're ETs, right? It's, it's just a different term for the same thing. It's a different term. Yeah. Same thing. Right. Right. <laughs> and, you know, so you, you mentioned Akhenaten. Uh, this is not really related to giants, or maybe it is. But even in southern Illinois here, I know there's been Egyptian artifacts found in North America. I've so, heard of that. So, and whether they're legit or not, I think they are because we know the guy who actually is holding some of them, Harry Hubbard. Harry Hubbard. Yep. And he says academia won't recognize them. They, you know, uh, he's had some people offer him upwards of $10,000 for a stone, you know, the, an artifact this size. Mm -hmm. Now, why? Would somebody pay that much for a hoax? History Channel even came came to him and did an episode, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Scott Walter does a lot of that. America Unearthed. Yeah, it's uh, a great show. I yeah. love that. He's show. a great show, and yeah. he's done extensive research on um, these pre-Columbian cultures coming here to America: the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, the Celts, um, and also even way before Scott, there's a guy named Barry Fell. If you don't know who he is, I would encourage you to look up his works. He came out with a few books. One of them was uh, called America BC. Mm, okay. America BC, Barry Fell. He studied ancient languages and he was he was researching all these different sites in America here where there was Egyptian script, um, all Phoenician, uh, evidence of Phoenicians being here. Yeah. Right, so Barry Fell? Barry Fell, F-E-L-L. -L. Okay. So you're telling me... Christopher Columbus wasn't the first one. <laughs> no, he was late, late on the scenes. Yeah, he was way late on the scenes. And in right. fact, I, from my research, uh, I'd really gotten into researching the Knights Templar a number of years mm -hmm. ago. And through my own research, um, there are many people that believe that um, he had married into a family of uh, his father-in-law was a, a, a knight, um, a grandmaster of the Knights Malta. 
which was basically another version of the Templars. And actually his father-in-law had given him Templar maps to get to America. So, so the Templars had already came to America pre-Columbus. And if you, if you want to look into that, look up the Kensington runestone. And that's another uh, artifact that uh, Scott Walter has researched and authenticated. And that, that runestone was here long before Columbus was here. And uh, Oak Island is living proof that they were here. They were here. The amount of artifacts that they have uncovered on that Island from the Knights Templar yep. and just Europe in general. Yes. Is overwhelming. It, it rewrites history alone. It right. does. Now, whether something's buried there, I don't know. What do you think? Um, <laughs> you know, I've, I think that there was a great treasure that was there. I think it was moved. I think it was maybe kept there for a while. And whoever engineered those tunnels and everything, obviously they were very intelligent. Um, I right. think they, I think they got the goods and they moved them out of there. Um, there might right. be a few things left, but I think the big treasures, um, unfortunately, I think they're they're gone. I would well, like I, for them to be there. Right, right. I think I'd it, like for them to find it. I think they had advanced technology that were. That's why they were able to to create, create all that in the first place. And then they, so then it would be super easy for them to move it out of there yeah. without right. Well. I agree. I think I think there's still something there. I feel like there's still something there for them to uncover. There might still be something. Um, whether or not it's a, some grand treasure, who knows? I'm sure it was. If they went to that extent to bury it, then obviously it was something pretty valuable. Right. But just the artifacts alone, though, that they're finding makes it. It's makes verifying what right. they're doing. It's rewriting. Right. That alone is rewriting history for the mainstream because that's on the history channel for the world to see like okay like right. the story of columbus like why are we even celebrating that anymore uh but yeah. in my opinion it's also funny that they're trying to dig from the top down like if there's a tunnel network there's an entrance that's not that, right you know if you're trying to get to right. an underground base in a mountain you don't start digging at the top of the mountain you look, <laughs> you look for an entrance Let's start digging down and some yeah. of those old maps yeah. Some of those old maps and literature talk about entrances at the shore to the tunnel. So I'm like, what are you guys looking here for? But it's still entertainment, but it's a show. Uh <laughs> it's a fun show. I haven't it watched is. it in a long time. But you mentioned ancient technology, uh, Aaron. And in my book, I talk about uh Teotihuacan, which is a city yes. in Mexico that I went to called the place where men become gods. And mm. if you ever get a chance to visit there, it's one of the most incredible sites, I think. Ever. I, want, I want to. Okay, yeah. so it, it isn't it just um it's it's so amazing. And there was discovered underneath that site tunnels under underneath the, the pyramids, and a sinkhole opened up, and an archaeologist, Indiana Jones style, roped down there, had a had a torch, went down into these tunnels and found all kinds of artifacts. But the most interesting thing he found were these spheres that contain liquid mercury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they contain yeah, liquid mercury, story. right? And so what what is what is the significance of that? Well, well, archaeologists will tell us, oh, well, they use liquid mercury like um, as a scrying device, like they would look in the liquid mercury and they would try to predict the future, right? Like a crystal ball kind of thing. Okay, is that possible? Well, maybe. But what I found interesting and I talk about it in my book is that if you get mercury so cold, if you get it to a certain point, it will produce anti-gravity properties. Yep. Right. It will produce right. anti-gravity properties. I think on Ancient Aliens one time they did a demonstration where they had this um, 
like a magnetic track and the guy filled like a puck and it was with something that was uh, equivalent to liquid mercury. They couldn't actually use liquid mercury because it was so toxic, but something equivalent to it. They got it so cold. And this thing is floating around the track. I saw it around and around and around. And they even put an object in front of it and it stops and it goes around it and it goes Mm -hmm. around and around. And they asked him, they said, well, uh, conceivably, if you could, uh, keep this mercury at a cold enough point, could you create a craft that would produce anti-gravity properties? And in that scientist's opinion, he said, yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And there that's probably one of many methods of creating. Yeah. Uh, right. That's just one. Technology. That's just right. one. That's yeah. Just one. There's lots. Right? And what were the ancient civilizations doing with it? Well, we know, you know, right. They yeah. were advanced themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's why, there's a, those same cultures. That's why there's so many similarities all over the world. It's like okay, yes. the same structures here, or the, you know, it, it could because it might have been the same people. With, with sound, you can you can lift objects. Yes, alone with sound with mm-hmm. with frequencies. <clears throat> Very true. Right. That's, you got Coral Castle in Florida. They That's sell amazing. Mm-hmm. You can go on Amazon and buy a little box that you know puts out a frequency, and something will float above it. You know, right. it's like, like okay, incredible. Yeah, but there. So all this technology, it's kind of being trickled out, but it's being trickled out into these useless gadgets. Like yes. it's not being integrated into our infrastructure and where we need it. It's it's so true, and in fact, it, not only useless gadgets, but they make the gadgets to the point where they call it. Um, I forget the term, but it's so they break down. They don't even last long. So right. you have to replace a planned obsolescence. Right. So the, the useless gadgets, and then they don't even last long. So you're constantly having to, to consume and consume and consume and consume. It's just such right. a waste. Right. So your book doesn't just cover giants. You talk about little people. Dwarves, little people. Dwarves, yeah. the moon-eyed people that only come out at night. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. So this is wild because I was just looking at these old newspaper articles on giants and I came across other newspaper articles on anomalous finds. And one of them that I came across was in Tennessee on a farm, allegedly uh, like 75,000 of these little skeletons, these little people, no, no taller than three feet were found on this farm. And then I started looking into it, looking into the Native American uh, oral histories. And most of the tribes, they talk about giants and they talk about little people. So that's common in their in their histories as well. And then I was looking into the discovery uh, in the early 2000s on the uh, on Flores Island in Indonesia of the Flores Hobbit. Have you guys heard of heard of that? From your book, from yeah, my, yeah from the book, and it's mm-hmm. the, these little uh, in a in a giant a giant cave, Liang Bao. I, I'm not sure if that's how it's pronounced. This cave on this island of Flores in Indonesia, they found these little skeletons, and they were no no taller than three feet tall, mm-hmm. and they were intelligent. They found tools. They knew how to make fire. Um, their brain was smaller than a chimpanzee, but yet they were able to do all these things. And in fact, they think that they were hunting Komodo dragons. Like how badass is that? (laughs) Little people like three feet tall, right? With their little spears going after these Komodo dragons because they actually found some remains of Komodo dragons in their cave like they had killed them. I mean, it's no different than a Native American hunting a mastodon. You know, no kidding. Exactly. They just knew how to do it. They, they, over the, you know, uh, the knowledge, tribal knowledge, they figured out how to do it. And then that was passed on to the, to the younger generation. Right. Now now you mentioned the moon-eyed people. Is that what you call them? um, Yeah. 
they were called the moon-eyed people that natives believed that there was a group of uh, little people. They lived underground and uh, they would only come out at night because the sunlight hurt, hurt their eyes. And they had, they had big eyes and they would, they would keep in, into the underground. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because in a lot of Native American um, history, oral tradition about little people and even about giants, they say a lot of them say they lived underground. Yeah. That's where they lived. Correct. That's yep. all over the world. And a lot of these yeah. cultures, I mean, it makes the most sense, actually. It's Absolutely. the shelter. Yeah. And in South America, apparently, there's countries over there that have extensive tunnel systems that go for hundreds and hundreds of, of miles underground. Yeah. Have you heard right. of the Aleutians? I think they're called in Mexico, the little people. Aleutians. The name sounds, tell me more about it. The name sounds so, kind of familiar. Um, my friend was born and raised in Cancun and he told me okay. about this legend. If you go down, if you go to Mexico, there's these altars everywhere on the side of the road, these little altars, sometimes mm -hmm. they're big. So the whole thing is if you don't bless your land and get permission from the Aleutians, the little people that your land will be cursed, your, the job site will be cursed, you'll, everything mm. will go wrong. And this is like true. They believe that. They actually, well, they they don't just believe it. Like the, the government will even like they they even build an altar before they build like an airport. I mean, even like wow. the officials right. recognize this. And his family members and himself and everybody he knows, they claim to literally see these things running around. You sometimes you can catch them out of the corner of your eye, and it's proven over and over again. If you don't put an altar up, like mm -hmm. something goes wrong. That land is literally cursed. And there was a bridge at the Cancun airport that I th forgot how many times the brand new bridge collapsed, like three or four wow. times before it. they finally built this huge altar and then the bridge. And, it, and then it yeah. didn't. Yeah. Wow. That is very, very fascinating. No, I haven't heard about those, but it's interesting uh, what you're talking about uh, because it parallels some of the things when I was researching the little people, uh, the Native Americans gave them different names. And they said, if you were disrespectful to them, like they would be mischievous. They would put a curse on you. Um, some of the tribes would leave out food for them yep, or like tobacco as like an offering to them because they didn't want to get on their beds. So that's really interesting, Tyler, to hear you tell that story. And then it right. kind of parallels what I came across. And I know, I know a few people locally and that have claimed to see little people in the St. Charles area. Actually. Really? Yeah. Um, my dad was actually sending me texts the other day of some of his friends who claimed to have experiences with these little people. That's where I grew up. Yeah. So, I mean, who knows what's actually going on? And it would only make sense that they're coming from underground. Yeah. Um, also, too, um, there was, uh, in my research in Tennessee, there was some college that when it was being built, uh, or or they were adding on to it, adding on to the college, they found a tunnel system underneath the college. Yeah. And and the Native Americans in that area said the little people were in that area. And there was a person that worked at the college that claimed they found a like a, a skull of a little person. And it was actually kept on the someone. Uh, one of the professors kept it on their desk, the skull on the on their desk. Wow. I, I mean, at this point, I, I can believe anything. <laughs> I Nothing right. surprises me. Yeah. Something else. This is a little side note, but I, it just popped into my head. So have you seen a movie called Troll? on netflix it's a brand new movie about i, I have not but it's uh, someone had mentioned that to me but i, I have actually way it. better than you think and it tells a history of giants hmm. uh, norwegian like giants yes or norris yeah whatever and hmm. um 
it's really it, there's actually a lot of disclosure in my opinion in that movie about these ancient giants and interesting this one, this one guy is a researcher and he like is he he's done extensive research over the years and he has a whole shack you know in the middle of nowhere with all mm. of his findings and regardless of that the point i'm trying to make is so the queen the king i forgot whoever he is in the movie um the castle the palace is built mm -hmm. on top of what was depicted to be the the giant's home the giant's castle and the reason they chose that location was because they said it was good luck to build on top of another king's home now wow. i'm starting to think about other sites around the world in egypt they they say that they would come in and like deface it and erase and rewrite history but maybe mm -hmm. that's not the case maybe they built on top of it because it was considered good luck and then in Graham Hancock's show in Chalupa, whatever the, mm -hmm. uh, I forgot what that site is, but there was, they found like five different civilizations that mm -hmm. built on top of each other. And in my opinion, the, these these massive sites weren't just random sites. This is like right. the king's home. And they were building on top of the king's home as good luck. So, so true. I believe you're onto something there. Um, and I've also heard the term ancestral worship, like that's like the, it's a spiritual site for them. And so they're going to build on top of that and build and somehow uh, some of these cultures might have rituals where they, um, where they try to connect with the spirits at that site. Yeah. Right. And in Chichen Itza, yeah. same thing. You have a pyramid built on top of a pyramid. Yes. And it's probably a vortex as well, or a ley line. Well, the, the reason that area was chosen originally probably for that reason yeah there's right. probably an energetic significance and, and if they knew about that if they had that knowledge yeah then yeah there's an island off the coast of Italy, and I, I, I think I'm going to write about this in my second book called Sardinia, and, and that has uh, a lot of um, legends of giants on that island, and they have um, amazing uh, ancient uh, architecture on there called Cyclopean architecture, right? What is a cyclops? It was a right. giant. It was one right. eye. It was so the very term Cyclopean, um, uh, you know, architecture, uh, you know, is like, hey, the, these people, they were a big people, a race of giants built these things. But um, there was a culture there. They were called the Naraje and they were a warrior culture. And what they would do is they would build on these ancient um, stone structures that allegedly had the, the burials of the giants. And they would do um, they would do like their rites of passage uh, for manhood would be at these sites. So whoever was going through this young, young boy that was becoming a man would go through this process, this ritual, but it was to connect with the spirit of the giant that was buried underneath them. Wow. So it kind of goes back to what you're saying, Tyler, about it, there's so much more purpose on these sites, building one on top of the other on top of the other. Yeah. like at a deeper level at a at a at a spiritual level yeah and as soon right. as they said that in that movie it clicked i'm like oh my god that makes perfect yeah. sense yeah i'm gonna check out that movie and i've got a movie for you guys and your listeners that are interested in the whole lovelock cave there's a movie that came out it's a western horror flick it's called bone tomahawk it's with kurt russell okay. and it's okay. a dark horror western and it has to do with a tribe that is very similar to the red-haired giants, but they're called troglodytes in the movie. Really? And I'm not going to give give any more away. They're not they're not giants, but everything else about them is like the red-haired giants. But it's really? a very interesting movie. Yeah, it's okay. called Bone Tomahawk with Kurt you can Russell. Tell what inspired that? 
tale. Yeah, uh, right. absolutely. Like I'm thinking, like yeah, the writers of this, they they probably knew the knew the legend of the red hair giants. All right. So right. my favorite part about your book is you go from giants to ETs, reptilians to tall whites. Yeah. And yeah. your segment on the tall whites actually led me to a documentary that I watched, Walking with the Tall Whites, and with yes. uh, Charles. Hall. Is it Charles James Hall or whatever? Hall, yes. And he actually reached out to him already to see if we can get him on the show, yeah. by the way. Oh, wonderful. Very yeah. cool. But uh, that that story is incredible. You know, he it was is. stationed at Nellis Air Force Base in the 60s and claims to have been working with tall whites and that the government's yeah. working with tall whites. Can you, yeah. t you could probably tell that story better than I can. Um, well, yeah, he just worked um, at this Air Force base and he had heard rumors of some strange going goings on there. And um, he was out at a weather shack, I believe, mm -hmm. and kind of a remote area on the base. And he actually started to encounter these tall white beings. Um, I think he saw a little girl and he looked at her and is like, that's not that's not like a human. That's not like a human child. That's something else. And then he's, I think he saw the father come and get the child. And then he started having these interactions with these, uh, these tall whites. And some of them were like, I think like a seven foot, eight foot tall. And he said that they could communicate telepathically. Um, he said that they, they could live like hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, if they were wounded or they had an injury, it took them an incredibly long time to heal. But basically, um, that they were working with our government in some capacity, yeah. which I thought was incredible. I mean, either this guy is completely out of his mind, which I don't think is the case. He no. seems like a very intelligent individual, um, very credible individual in just how he articulates his story. He's a nuclear physicist, too, I believe. Um, he's a pretty intelligent, grounded person. Yeah. And um yeah, just an incredible, incredible story. I, I was amazed. That's how I got introduced. I saw that documentary as well and was just very uh, intrigued on that whole subject. And then I found out that the document dump that uh, Snowden released, that there was information on the, uh, the, the tall whites. And I'm like, what? Like, this is yeah, crazy. Yeah. And like our government interaction with these, these beings called the tall whites. And just to clarify, the way he describes the tall whites aren't like I imagined them originally. I imagined like a tall gray with a long neck and, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. But he describes them as human looking. Yes. With paper white skin. Yes. And really thin hair. He said they have very thin hair, um, kind of blondish, almost, yeah, almost whitish hair. Yeah. And very, um, very skinny, very almost frail. Yeah. So, and, and he described them be, the reason they took so long to heal because they're not from this planet, you know, and mm -hmm. they're not used to our environment. So even a bee sting could be deadly to them. Yes. And, and his testimony is incredible. He talks about, so this was in the sixties. He yeah. said before he left, they were in talks with the government. There, there was a series of uninhabited planets that they basically handed over to us or gave us access to and asked our government our military, if we could build outposts on those planets for right. them in an exchange for whatever technology or whatever else they were uh, doing with us. Now, if they were planning that in the 60s, this was before we ever went to the quote, went to the moon. Yeah, that that would tell you that they they couldn't have made that agreement unless they had technology to get to those planets. Right. And like even in the documentary, he says he wonders what progress was ever made on that project. Right. And I, I would not be surprised if that's exactly what happened. And that was, they followed through with it.
Yeah, it's just mind blowing. It really is. It's I got I got to the point in my book uh, where it kind of started writing itself. I would just come across a, some information, and then it would lead me down another rabbit hole. Um, my my section on um, on the on the ET races was really inspired by my friend Charles because he had he was a ufologist too, and he had sent me a a paper on. Um, on that subject and he talked a little bit about the grays and the tall whites and the reptilians and i never really researched that and i thought wow i'm really going to look into this and it was it was fun for me and it was a way for me to kind of honor him too because mm -hmm. i referenced some of his works and, and um, right and another yeah. thing i learned from your book i might have heard this in the past but i completely forgot about it was this lost city of reptilians under los angeles yeah isn't that crazy can you tell that story? Because that's actually really yeah. fascinating. Yeah, that was an article I came across. I think it was back in the 1930s, uh, a gentleman um, who had developed some x-ray machine. And he had, uh, I guess, got the information from a Hopi uh, uh, chief, uh, uh, Chief Greenleaf, that basically said, yeah, there's all these tunnels under Los Angeles and it's inhabited. It was, they were constructed by these reptilians that came from Mexico that had to flee, that had to flee their area. And they used some kind of strange chemicals to carve these, these caves and caverns. And they have a city under underneath Los Angeles. And this guy was so intrigued that he used his x-ray machine and claimed that he had mapped out these tunnels underneath the, underneath the city and actually um, was working with the city to do this uh, expedition. And, um, he started drilling down. I don't know how far down they got, maybe uh, 10, 20 feet. And then they ran out of money and they couldn't, they couldn't go any further. But obviously, I mean, he had this firm belief that there were these reptilians, uh, reptilian city underneath Los Angeles. And obviously it's in the, in the native tradition as well. In fact, the Anasazi talk about, um, um, a reptilian being that showed up to their people, it was evil and it was teaching their medicine men um, how to practice witchcraft, uh, which basically brought their civilization down. And, and then it led to some cannibalism and they were doing practicing this witchcraft and, and it opened up portals. And guess what came out of the portals? Giants. And the mm -hmm. giants started tearing everything up killing and eating people and, and and then i'm thinking wow this sounds almost like the book of enoch when enoch said mm -hmm. that the giants were running around destroying everything drinking blood and and this and that and i was like wow this sounds kind of similar to that i think the anasazi i think that's the story told of what happened to the people of chaco canyon it is that they left because of the giants um you know uh, archaeologists will say oh they left because of climate change because of the droughts or whatever but in my book i reference um a Native American uh, uh, guide in that book for that uh, that area, and he says, if you ask were to ask my great grandfather, he would say it's not climate change that drove him out; it was the giants, and right. that's mm -hmm. why the early archaeologists would go into these uh, structures, these pueblos, and they would find like really good supplies and stuff that had just been abandoned. You know, it's like, why would they leave all this good stuff? Why would they well, leave all their stuff? It doesn't all their sense. stuff. Yeah. yeah. If it was climate change or whatever, they would have still brought that stuff with them. But right. if they were under duress, if they were under attack and they were being slaughtered, well, it's like, let's just take what we can carry on our back and get out mm -hmm. of here. Right. Right. Going back to the L.A. Si city mm -hmm. of reptilians or tunnels. Mm -hmm. 
not only did he claim to depict tunnels with his x-ray machine but he said he found caverns with deposits of gold too correct gold tablets gold. apparently that had information on them about the whole the, our whole uh history of the human civilization our race well, it's, so it's yeah. knowledge based too. Yeah. It just wasn't treasure based. It was knowledge based. But you'll yeah. hear these stories, you know, like you know the Great Sphinx. The left is it the left paw of the Sphinx. There's supposedly mm. a, a hidden chamber there that right. had the the records, the ancient records of our civilization. You hear Graham Hancock's. You know his theory is the pyramids were built. Some of these big structures were built to as repositories for this ancient knowledge that was either destroyed or it was lost or it was moved somewhere else. Yeah, relocated. Mm. Relocated. Likely. Yeah. Under the Vatican. Oh, yeah. yeah. Imagine how much stuff they have. Right. Oof. Yeah. There, right. I mean, there's miles and miles of. If anything yeah, is true that we've heard from what's under the Vatican, I mean, it's, it's that in itself will change history. Right. I'm going to get into that in my second book when I get into the uh, 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 Sardinia on the giants there, because I already in my research, um, I've uncovered people that live on Sardinia that the church actually hired to do excavations and they found giant skeletons and they would bring them into the church and leave them. And then they would come the next day and the bones are gone. The bones are gone. So mm, really actual people that claim they were doing excavations and found these things. Well, looking forward to that second book. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Going back to the Chaco Canyon one last time and then we'll start yeah. wrapping this up. But sure. The. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Wingmakers. Um, so there was a, ca a cave near Chaco Canyon. It's undisclosed mm -hmm. where they allegedly found a bunch of alien artifacts. And, oh. and apparently these artifacts were left by like an ancient group of time travelers. And it wasn't just this cave, but mm -hmm. ca like a number of caves around the, the world. I, didn't, I don't actually know the... the the true story. I don't, I don't have all the details, but some something like that. And I find it interesting that it was near Chaco Canyon, and very interesting. Clearly, clearly, that was built by an advanced civilization. That's very fascinating. I, I have not heard of that, and and you relaying that to me also triggers a memory too. Getting back to the Nazca mummies, um, how those came to be known was the grave robbers brought them forward to an archaeologist and they thought they were so important. Like it's like instead of putting these on the black market, making some money, we we feel these are so important that humanity needs to know about them. Right, and the right. and and the head of the Hoqueros, the the group of grave robbers that that gave them the mummies, he said he knows where the whole there's a whole underground tunnel complex with tons more of these mummies and who knows what else is in there. Really? Right. And well that also going back to the wingmakers in that cave, it wasn't just artifacts, but it was tablets it yes. was, uh, that were found with information. Mm -hmm. And all that stuff is on the wingmakers website, actually. I'm going to have to check that out. I had not heard of that. There, there's a bunch of different versions of the wingmakers website, uh, but people, because it's been updated over time, but depending on who you talk to, they recommend going to the original one uh, that hasn't been updated because none of the information has been tampered with. So I'll send you that link and I'll, I'll, I would I'll, love it. I know I'll have to put it in the description too, because people listening, they're like, I want to look it up. Absolutely. That might, that might go in my second book. There's some more there's, information there's right a there. Books worth of information on that yeah. website. And so this guy um, who claimed to work for this group broke free and, and uh, 
he did a few interviews with this lady before he he knew part of part of the deal was if you quit your position at this for this secret government he was working for mm -hmm. um i think he said they would literally blank slate you mind wipe you so yes. before he quit he knew he could no longer participate in the cover-up before he quit he went and found a journalist and did a few interviews with her told her everything and there's no way to contact her even on the website said so you cannot there's no contact information at wow, all so interesting whatever happened to this guy if he really did get blank slated or what mm. who knows but it's an incredible story oh i'm i'm eager to look forward uh in dig into that thank you yeah. so much yeah right. and that's just that's amazing the synergy the exchange you know of knowledge and right. You know, um, just like what you said, I had no idea about that story. And now it's something I'm going to look into. And who knows oh, where, where that's going to go. Talk about, you right. know, you know how I found out about the wingmakers. I had a yeah. dream that I was part of a group of time travelers and I was called the wingmakers. That's and, wild. And then I stumbled across a Dr. Sala interview where the guy was talking about it. Mm -hmm. And then something else came into my awareness. It just kept showing up kept to where I up. finally just had to go read a, the whole you know website. So incredible. Um, it's it's interesting how we're guided to this stuff. Yes. Uh, let people know how they can find your book, where they can find it. Um, absolutely. If you'd like to purchase my book, you can find it at bookbaby.com. Um, because I'm a self-published author, a book baby does an awesome job at really supporting self-published authors. So I would encourage you to go there to get it. Also, you could find it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble as well. Um, I do have a website, theancientgiants.com, and it has more information, um, a little bit of information on my background and uh, my my research that I'm doing. Great. Awesome. That's We'll put all those links below. Yeah, we'll put the links. Uh, guys, go yeah. check out this book. Hold it up, Aaron, so yeah. you can see what it looks like. Get a little closer. Um, it's really, I mean... If you enjoyed this interview, you'll enjoy the book. There's it's no, awesome. There's it's no doubt in my mind. Super good. Yes. Um, thank you guys so much. I mean, what amazing. an honor and a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks, thanks to you both, and thanks to your audience for having me. I could, I could sit here and talk to you guys for hours, like easily, like all this time. It seems like we've been talking for five minutes. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Same to you, man. Uh, and yeah, you know, you so much. there's no doubt in my mind. We'll, uh, we'll do this again for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, especially, right. you know, you got another book coming out. So there's plenty to talk about. You know, we could yeah. do another episode just on this book alone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, you guys. Right. What, a, what a pleasure. Much love and peace to you both. And and uh, happy new year coming up. And uh, hopefully it's going to be a, a good year. Much better than what we had, right? <laughs> it's going to be exactly what it's supposed to be. <laughs> what it's supposed to be, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, thank right. you guys so much for tuning in. Um, thank you. Floyd for joining yeah, thank us. Thank you, man. Yeah, this, yeah. Was, this was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Guys, if you want to come to our conference, come hang out with us. Grab a ticket. Uh, book your lodging. The lodging's filling up quick. So if you want to stay on site, I recommend doing that soon. Uh, this, uh, it's filling up. So uh, we hope to see you there. Tickets are available at journeytotruthcon.com. Uh, hope you can make it. Good night, everybody. Until next night, time, guys. have a great evening.